Friends, good morning and welcome. My name is Ryan Bonfilio, and I am the Scholar-in-Residence here at First Pres and Director of Biblical and Theological Studies, and I'm delighted that you all are here with us this morning as we launch our second First in Focus series. Now, as many of you know, First in Focus is a, a unique Sunday school program here at First Pres where we try to generate church-wide conversations and bring together all of our diverse Sunday school classes around a single topic that we think is important to Christian faith and theology. Uh, we, we launched this six-week series for the first time last fall, and we did a, a six-week study of the biblical concept of Sabbath and how it relates to our very busy and overfull lives uh, today. And starting this morning, we're going to start another six-week series that I'm calling Praying the Psalms. We'll be thinking about how the Psalms function to inform and then guide our own spiritual formation, and in particular, the way in which we relate to God and others uh, in authentic ways. Not inauthentic, but in authentic ways. That would be very misleading. Uh, here's how the program works. Uh, it's six weeks long. In the first week today, we'll gather here in Fifield for this lecture. Today's lecture will set the tone for the series. It'll introduce the topic and give you a sense not only of why we're taking up this topic, but where we are headed over the course of this six weeks. And then for the next four weeks, weeks two through five, if you are already part of a Sunday school community here at First Pres, you will go to your normal Sunday school class, Discovering God's Word, Emmaus, Covenant, whatever it is, and you will continue to study this topic of praying the Psalms through a prepared curriculum uh, that I have made. It will be complete with a leader's guide and all those sorts of things. So you'll kind of continue the conversation the way that your Sunday school class normally does. And then in the sixth week, we'll gather back here together for a final lecture here in Fifield Hall. It's on uh, April 9th, which happens to be Palm Sunday. And we'll do kind of a concluding section that helps us process and synthesize where we've been in the previous five weeks. But there's also going to be an added element that connects this series very specifically to Palm Sunday uh, and Jesus' uh, passion and uh, uh, death on the cross. So uh, that's, what, that's what the series will look like. Let me bring this back online here. Hang on one second. There we go. Um, our hope in doing this sort of series is threefold. One, we want to preserve and deepen the sort of connections that, all, that many of you have in your Sunday school communities already. Second, we want to generate some church-wide conversations. We are a large church, and we do a lot of different things, and we talk about a lot of different things at the same time. First and Focus is a way to bring us all together around the same topic, even though you'll talk about it in different ways. We want to come together to be thinking and praying and talking about the same sort of thing at the same time. And then the third reason for doing this study is that we want to provide an opportunity for those who are not already involved in a Sunday school community to, to test out Sunday school. So if you're not part of First Foundations or The Gathering Place or Hours for Today, but you, you're interested in this topic and, and want to join in, please do so. Join us for the lectures. In weeks two through five, I will be hosting a small group for this class in the bride's room. So if you don't already feel connected to a to one of our classes, please join me in the bride's room at the Sunday school hour in weeks two through five, and we'll continue to do the same sort of discussion that's happening in the other Sunday school classes. So uh, with that in mind, let me just say a couple other notes. Uh, there's food and coffee in the back at any point. Uh, that sounded very Long Island. I said coffee. The, um, there's, there's food and coffee in the back. Help yourself at any point to that. Um, if you know someone who missed today's lecture, or if you're just really interested in a rerun, we will have both audio and visual forms uh, of this lecture on our website. So simply go to the Learn link or the Learn uh, tab on our uh, homepage, 
go down to First in Focus, and when you click on First in Focus, you'll be able to access both of our two First in Focus courses. If you click on Practicing Sabbath, you can get all the materials from the Practicing the Sabbath class. And if you click on, click on Praying the Psalms, you'll see uh, the audio podcast, you'll see a video of this. And then in subsequent weeks, you'll also be able to access ebook versions of all of our participants' guides for weeks two through five. So uh, check this out. Uh, it'll be a good resource to guide you through this study. All right, I think that's all I have for logistics. I usually try to draw out my logistics really long so I don't have to do any content, but <laughs> alas, it's only 10.05 and it seems too early to stop. So with that, let's pray and then we'll begin our time together. Merciful and holy God, we're grateful for the chance to gather together to worship, to study your word. Please open our hearts and minds. Help us to connect more deeply with you, with one another, and with ourselves as we think about the beautiful words you give us in the Psalms and how it can give expression to our varied experiences in this life of faith that we live. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Of all the books in Scripture, the Psalms might well be the most dearly loved, the most frequently memorized, and the most often cited in Christian circles. To put it in terms appropriate for the season, if the Bible were the NCAA basketball tournament, the Psalms would be a perennial number one seed in the bracket. Christians and Jews alike love the Psalms. And there's, there's a variety of different evidences for our great love of the Psalms. Um, I would venture to say that from Sunday school classes, little ones, all the way through adults, we tend to memorize the Psalms more than any other book of Scripture. So, to test out your memory of the Psalms, we're going to do a little quiz. You know that I like quizzes as part of my classes. There are, there's no credit uh, given for this other than uh, the satisfaction that you have of knowing the answer. Uh, so, this is fill in the blank. Fill in the blank of famous Psalms to see how well we have memorized them. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Not bad. Th these go from easy to harder, by the way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a... Light to my path. Good. My God, my God, why? And I'm hearing some KJV mixed in with the NRSV. I hear some thou's as well. Uh, why have you forsaken me? And then finally, one last one. God is our refuge and strength, a blank and ever-present help in times of trouble. In fact, the Hebrew of that, just as a little interesting side note, is something more like a very sufficient in times of trouble. Similar meaning, but, but a slightly different thing. So many of us know the Psalms by heart as evidence of how much we love them. I would venture to say, too, that the Psalms are some of the most publicly displayed Bible verses in all of our canon as well. Now, I have not conducted a scientific study of this, but I venture to guess that the Psalms are the most cross-stitched part of the Bible. And I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I suspect that many of you have something like this hanging probably in a spare bedroom or in that bathroom down the hall that, dot, that does not get used a whole lot. So here you have two wonderfully cross-stitched uh, references from Psalms. Um, I'll leave it to you to decide what this one is, if, how good your Roman numerals are. Uh, XXIV, you can decide on what that is. Um, I would say also and beyond this that the Psalms are the most popular 
if not a book of the whole Bible, they are certainly the most popular book in the Old Testament. This is precisely why many Christian publishers put together those mini-Bibles that just have the New Testament plus one Old Testament book. And of course, what is that one Old Testament book? The Psalms. Now, occasionally you'll get something like this, the NIV Holy Bible, New Testament plus Psalms and Proverbs. Proverbs might take a close second place to Psalms in terms of their popularity. What I wonder, though, and what I have never found in a bookstore, but I would like to publish one day myself, is this sort of volume, the New Testament plus Leviticus and Habakkuk. Because why not? I mean, if we're going to combine Old Testament, a few Old Testament books with the new, why not those two? I'm very fond of Leviticus myself, but I'm worried that, that uh, this would not sell quite as well as this. The Psalms also, another evidence of its popularity, is that the Psalms, liturgically speaking, is the book of the Bible that is, that is at least potentially most often read on Sunday mornings. In the Revised Common Lectionary, a, a, a system of organizing texts for Sunday morning reading, the Revised Common Lectionary uh, names four texts for each Sunday, an Old Testament text, a psalm, a gospel, and an epistle. But that psalm is always there, and it's the only book of the Bible that appears every week, in, or at least potentially appears every week, in Christian worship. And then my final evidence, although surely this is not an exhaustive list, is that if you read the, uh, Shakespeare's plays, the Psalms are his most referenced biblical book. So in both ecclesial and maybe uh, secular context, the Psalms seem to have a certain staying power and popularity among uh, Christians and non-Christians alike. Now this general observation, which might not be all that surprising or insightful, actually leads us to the central question of the Course. That is, given their beloved status, how should the Psalms function in our lives of faith? So given that they're so dearly loved, beloved, what are they supposed to do? What should we do with them? And maybe more importantly, what do they do to us as we encounter them in our spiritual formation? This is the question that I will begin to address in this section, but really is the question that we will reflect on together throughout this whole course. Given the, 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 our love for the Psalms, what are they supposed to do and how are they intended to function. And so I actually want to get you all started in talking about this very question. Um, I will give some of my proposals in just a second, but a quick TAPS exercise. Now, if you've been in my courses before, you know that TAPS stands for Talking Aloud Partner Sharing. So it's a way for you to just talk amongst uh, each other to begin to flesh out an idea. So your first TAPS exercise uh, for today is, what are the Psalms? How do they function? That is, if you were supposed to describe the genre of literature that the, that the Psalms are. I mean, so give you an example. They're not a comic book. Okay, so that, that's, uh, so in case you're leading down that path, that's not what the Psalms are. But what would you say they are? How would you describe the book? So take, here's what we're going to do. Take two minutes, turn with a partner, uh, and talk about it. What would you call the Psalms, and what does that indicate about how they're supposed to function in Christian life and faith?
uh, let's come back together. I wonder if some of you might venture uh, to share with us how you answered these questions. What are the Psalms? Iris? Yeah, I'm going to call on her next. Um, we decided that it was a poetic expression of the human condition in conversation with God. Poetic expression of the human condition in conversation with God. That's pretty much what I'm going to say for the next six weeks. So um, let's, uh, I will meet you all at Starbucks, uh, and we can cut the video here. Lovely. Poetic expression that, that, that shares something of the deep emotions of the soul. We'll, we'll unpack that a little bit, but that, that's a great example. Uh, what else? Other, other offerings? What she said. <laughs> <laughs> They're hymns. Good, right? So there's a, a musical quality to it. I think beyond the messages from God, it's experiences that other characters in the history of the Bible have come out and expressed their feelings based on something that's happened in their life as God comes for us. The, the, very nicely said it. There's something uh, about the human condition in the, in, in the history of humanity that comes out. So we have examples of, the, of lives and, and, and different struggles and joys that happen therein. Any others? Yeah. Lament and distress followed by praise and affirmation of faith despite the circumstances. Okay, good. So we're starting to name some of the genres of the Psalms. Laments. But then those laments move to expressions of praise and trust and thanksgiving in response to God's uh, de surprising deliverance in, in the movement of the Psalms. This is great. Well, what you're saying very nicely maps onto some of the ideas I have. But I want to organize it uh, in ways that are both similar to and a little bit different than some of the things uh, that you have offered. In fact, I want to I name three possible labels that I think are suggestive of different functions of the Psalms in our lives of faith. The first is that in many Christian circles, the Psalms have often been called the Romans of the Old Testament. Now, what would it mean to call the Psalms the Romans of the Old Testament? What, what, what quality of the, of the Psalms is that trying to lift up, that title? What do you think of when you think of Romans? And they mean the Book of Romans, not like an ancient Roman. Honesty, okay. From someone who's studying the Book of Romans. Uh, centrality. Centrality, yes. So it's a, it's a center, central theological witness. I think of Romans as a very ponderous level in, sort of, in, in terms of some of the theologies that Paul is beginning to work out. And in many ways, the same could be said of the Psalms. In the Psalms, we discover a rich tapestry of theology. On David's many-stringed lyre, there can be heard almost every theological chord that resounds throughout the Bible. In it, we find reflections on the wisdom and law. We discover instructions about justice and righteousness. In the Psalms, we find stories about creation and history. And in the Psalms, we come across images of God's sovereignty as king, but also about God's solidarity with the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. But with all due respect to Paul, I would rather say that Romans is the Psalms of the New Testament <laughs> rather than the, uh, the Psalms being the Romans of the Old Testament. But however you parse it, the point is the same. We might think of the Psalms as a type of theological guidebook to our Christian formation. 
Um, Luther, in fact, did a 20-year study on the, th in the, on the Psalms, and in it, he found the very themes that he, saw, uh, that he saw as uplifting this doctrine of justification by faith alone that was so central to the Reformation. So Luther uh, connects that theology very intimately to the, um, to the Psalter. Psalm 119, the longest psalm by far in all of the Psalter, might be thought of as a type of mini-catechism. And though it's quite long, it's a lot shorter than the Westminster Catechism, even the shorter version of it that some of you I know memorized uh, long ago. By the way, just as a bonus quiz question in case you uh, feel like you missed one of the earlier uh, fill-in-the-blanks, uh, how many uh, verses is Psalm 119? It's really long, but how many verses? 176. Now for triple added bonus, <laughs> why is it 176 verses? There's actually a very specific reason for why. 22 times 8, that's exactly right. So, Bernard, you get all the bonus points here. Um, the reason it's 22 times 8 is that uh, Psalm 119, like several other psalms in the Psalter, is an acrostic poem. That is, each line of, or each verse begins with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, there's only 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, but Psalm 119 is an acrostic on steroids. So you get the first letter eight times, and then the second letter eight times, and then the third letter eight times, and the fourth letter eight times. So 22 letters times the eight-fold repetition of each letter gives you your 176. So that's just some psalm trivia, which we'll throw in uh, here and there. So th that's one view of the psalms, that it's kind of a theological source book. But the psalms, of course, is more than just uh, a container for theological claims. It is also a type of hymn book a type of hymn book. Indeed, the Psalms is the most lyrical and musical of all the books in Scripture. And this is true at a number of different levels. Uh, scholars believe uh, that the Psalms originated in a temple context, or at least some of the Psalms originated in a temple context, and would have been part of some sort of uh, liturgy or some sort of responsorial service. In fact, some Psalms seem to have been sung on specific liturgical occasions. So, for instance, Psalm 92, the superscription says, a song for the Sabbath day. They're giving some instruction about how this song or when this psalm would have been sung. Or Psalms 120 to 134 are collectively known as the songs of ascent, with the idea that this might have been a psalm that... Uh, that Israelites sung as they took a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and that they literally would have uttered these words as they ascended the, the Temple Mount uh, up to the temple as part of this pilgrimage festival. Uh, other psalms have more detailed instructions that are suggestive of their musical background. Uh, in Psalm 4, for instance, the superscription reads, to the choir master with stringed instruments, like some, some instructions of how you're supposed to play this. S same thing in Psalm 5, to the choir master for the flutes. You can imagine these psalms set to music and played in music. They had a, a, a musical and a lyrical quality. In fact, the Greek term uh, for, the, uh, for what we call the psalms, psalterion, actually is just the name of an ancient musical instrument, a musical instrument that you would have plucked uh, with your fingers or perhaps with some little uh, pick of some device. So even the name in Greek for the whole uh, psalter, psalterion, refers to its musical background. One other piece of evidence uh, that I find interesting is that 70 times in the Psalms, you'll find this little interjection, Selah. If you're just reading along in a line, and then this little word just jumps in at the end, Selah. Um, and so scholars have wondered. We don't really know what it means in Hebrew, but scholars have pondered its meaning. And they, it, it, the closest we can get to is that it's some technical term that provided instructions 
to whoever was playing the music that the psalms were set to. So does it mean fortissimo? Does it mean adagio? Does it mean repeat? Does it mean pause? We don't really know, but we think it's some sort of musical uh, instruction. Um, something I've not yet published yet, so, so don't jump me on this. But I think, here's what I think selah means. I think it's what David says in frustration when he breaks a harp chord. Uh, now, I, I can't prove that decisively. Uh, and that would give a very different sense of what the psalms are about. But Nevertheless, um, see my forthcoming article on that. Now, the result of all of this, of course, is that we use the Psalms today quite often as the lyrics of our hymns. If you look at any hymnal in any Protestant denomination, the, the Psalms are everywhere present. In fact, I did a little study. Um, there are 100, or excuse me, there's 853 hymns in our new Glory to God hymnal. How many do you think are based on the Psalms? I don't know, Bernard, I don't even know if that you could guess this uh, at this moment, but how, how, any guesses? Little more than 300. 475. Ooh, that's very close. 452 are, uh, of the, uh, so more than half, 53%, if you're interested, of our hymns are based on the language of the Psalms, which makes a lot of sense in light of the uh, uh, kind of musical background of the Psalter itself. Now, I want to offer a third kind of description of the Psalms that points in a different direction. And Iris, this will go back to some of your thoughts from your original answers. If nothing else, in addition to being a theological book and a hymn book, the Psalter is also a book of prayers. Um, with few exceptions, what we encounter in the Psalms is not the voice of God addressing humanity, but rather is the voice of humanity addressing God. You might think of it this way. It's not revelation from above, but as I describe it, it's revelation from the ground up. God is still there in those words, but these words are emerging from the prayers that reflect the lived experiences of, of, of people throughout the, the ages. This idea that the Psalms is a prayer book is reflected uh, in the titles for this volume in the Greek and Hebrew. The word psalmoi in Greek literally means prayers, and the Hebrew title for this collection, Tehillim, means praises, so a particular type of prayer. So there was always an awareness that, these, that the psalms were meant to be used to inform our prayer life. And in fact, uh, if you attend any uh, Sunday service in, in a Protestant church, you're likely to hear the psalms prayed in that service during specific parts. For instance, um, here we go, a prayer for illumination. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That's actually a quote from Psalm 19:14. Or our prayer of confession. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. A quote of the first line to Psalm 51. So already the church is using the language of the Psalms to inform our own prayers in liturgical context. So that's already happening in many ways. What is important to note and important to ask, if the Psalter is a book of prayers, what sort of prayers do we find in it? What type of prayers do we encounter in the Psalms? In answering this question, John Calvin, a famous reformer, described the Psalms as an anatomy of every part of the soul, as an anatomy of the soul. What Calvin was trying to recognize and deal with and give expression to was the fact that the Psalms are the most introspective book of all of Scripture. They give expression to a range of experiences, emotions, from anger and agony 
to joy, uh, to confession, to protest. What we find in the Psalter then are not just prayers, but prayers that give expression to the full range of human experience, from the greatest moments of thanksgiving and gratitude to the most agnostic moments of despair and doubt that we feel. Consider just even some of these words. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Why, O Lord, do you stand so far off? My my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. These words, all words from the Psalms, all words that are prayer words, these words are marked, in my opinion, by a certain rawness. There's a certain unmitigated honesty, vulnerability in these words. There's an explicit candor in these words. In fact, we might say that, the, that the, as, as, as a prayer book, book, the Psalms gives us faith unfiltered. It's faith unfiltered. There, there's no uh, need to kind of sanitize what we have to say to God, right? There's a certain rawness and realness to the expression. The, the psalmist feels no need to tidy up, to put on her Sunday best, and to parade out those cliches and niceties when someone asks, so how are you doing? The psalmist really tells you. Oh, I'm doing fine. Things are great. Work's good. Life's good. Kids are great. No, they actually tell you what's happening with with work and life and those kids and their marriage and their parents and all of that stuff. They lay it bare in many, many, many ways, the psalms do. If Calvin is right to say that that the psalms are anatomy of the soul, we might go so far as to, to describe the psalms as something of a gross anatomy. That is, sorry, uh, that is the psalmist literally spills his guts, as it were, before God. His soul is laid bare in all of its honesty, in all of its rough edges. That all becomes visible to God. The psalmist makes all of that visible before God. Uh, In the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, perhaps captures it the best, when it describes uh, the psalmist uh, believing in a God whom no secrets, from whom no secrets are hid. The psalmist knows the raw edges of our lives and dares to give expression to it through words. Um, this, in my opinion, is one of the greatest, has the greatest value or the greatest potential value to the Christian life is the sort of prayer we get in the Psalms. Um, it's not just a repository of theological truths or even a guide to our songs and our hymns, but rather the Psalms have a potential to be a mirror to our souls, to give expression to the very things in Christianity we feel that we cannot utter because it sounds unreligious or disrespectful or inappropriate to utter such, such thoughts, such loss, such fears, such emotions to God, the psalmist dares us to utter those things and calls it good and calls it faithful. It validates, the psalmist does, the hard things we have to say to God. It affirms that those expressions of doubt and grief and despair are not signs of our lack of faith, but are appropriate expressions of that faith. And we don't hear that often, in my opinion, in Christian circles. If we use the psalms to guide and inform our prayer life, then we have the potential to become more authentic, integrated, and honest people with one another, but also before God. And to me, that is the great power and potential of the function of the Psalms in our Christian faith and practice. But it's also the greatest problem. Because I think despite the the benefits, the invitation to open our lives to God through the Psalms, 
it also represents a fear we have. I think for many of us, the Psalms are too brutal. They're too real. They're too raw. They're too unfiltered. Uh, Their candor uh, bothers us. We have been taught to turn away, to shield our eyes from the sorts of things the psalmist dares to utter to God. The, 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 The psalmic disclosure, again, is too real, too raw, too unfiltered. Why is this the case? Because I think in part we have come to imagine in Christian circles a God who does not want and cannot handle our words of grief, our words of doubt, our words of questioning, and our words of frustration. We have come in Christian circles to think that's not our God. Our God can't handle that. I need to clean up how I feel and clean up what I say in order to bring that before God. We've been trained, and I'll name this a little bit more in a a bit, through our uh, music, through our preaching, through our Sunday school lessons, to think of God in that way. And I'll give you one example of it. uh, on uh, 104.7 The Fish uh, radio station, which some of you might be aware of, they played a, station, uh, they played a song the other day by a musical uh, group called Point of Grace. Maybe some of you know them. But the refrain in that song from Point of Grace is this line, who, I am, who am I to give you, God, anything but praise? Who am I to give you anything but praise? The presumed answer, according to Point of Grace and its many listeners, is that it would be audacious and impertinent and inappropriate to give God anything but our praise. But with all due respect to Point of Grace, I would answer this question slightly differently. Who am I, O God, to give you anything but praise? Someone who has read the Psalms. Someone who has opened a newspaper. Someone who cares about justice. Someone who believes that from God no secrets are hid. And someone who longs for spiritual honesty and authenticity. That's who we are to give God something other than praise. Now, this is not to say that we ought not to give God praise. Uh, That I want to affirm in all of its measure. But I think that we don't, by and large, struggle with giving our praise to God. Maybe in some cases we do, but I think that comes more naturally to us. I think it's the other stuff, it's that that unfiltered side of the Psalms that comes more difficult for us. Um, And I think actually that that comes to bear on how we use the Psalter uh, in the life of the church. And I want to give some examples of how um, essentially we, we have a selective use of the Psalms. We select the Psalms that tend toward... The, the nice messages, the, the, the praise, the thanksgiving, the things that sound happy and good and stable. We tend to have a preference for those things, and I think it gets worked out in two different ways. First, there's a certain type of uh, selectivity at work in our hymnals. Now, I've already said that there's this great thing where many, many of our hymns are informed by words of the Psalms. That, for someone who loves the Old Testament and studies the Old Testament, that is good news to me. I like that our hymns have this sort of Psalms background. But now we must ask, what types of psalms are most often used in the hymnal? Well, I'm glad you asked. W. Sibley Towner, a longtime professor of Old Testament at Union Seminary in Virginia, did a study of 211 hymns, all based on the psalms that, can be, that were held in common by a variety of different Protestant hymnals. And here's what he discovered. He discovered that 64 of the 150 psalms are not represented in the hymnal. Now, 
That's okay at one level. There's no need for our hymnal to represent every single psalm that's out there. But what's interesting and maybe problematic is that most of the unrepresented hymns are laments. That is to say, the laments are disproportionately present in our hymnal in comparison to what they're like in the psalms. And actually, this is quite a problem because the laments are the most common type of psalm in the Psalter, and yet they're the least common type of psalm in our hymnal. So do you get that? There's a lot of laments in the Psalter, and there's almost no laments in our hymnal. For those people interested in math, uh, 0.67 hymns, for every 0.67 hymns for one psalm of lament. So there are, uh, there are less hymns that include language of lament than there are psalms of lament. In comparison to other genres, there are 2.6 hymns for every psalm of trust. There are 1.34 hymns for every psalm of thanksgiving. And there are 3.18 hymns for every psalm of praise. So our hymnal is disproportionately skewed uh, in, in, in sort of its language. In fact, we sing, what we sing in hymns does not even begin to offer us the range of emotions, feelings, and expressions that are actually present in our Psalter. Now, a second example of this, but closely related, has to do, once again, with the Revised Common Lectionary, this three-year cycle of texts that, that many Protestant denominations use to help uh, structure their Sunday morning worship. As I said, there's already uh, there's one psalm present every week. That's a good thing. But again, we must ask, which psalms are selected to be included in the, uh, in the Revised Common Lectionary. Brent Strawn from Emory University did a study of psalms and Revised Common Lectionaries, and here's what he found. 51 of the 150 psalms are not represented anywhere in the three-year cycle. Uh, so what is that, uh, 156 weeks. 51 psalms are not represented at any point in the Revised Common Lectionary. Um, here again, the, under or the not represented psalms tend to be psalms of lament, and Psalms of Imprecation, which we'll study uh, in week uh, four of this, this series. So what this means is that if you were a super faithful uh, church attender, if you came to church every week for three years, uh, I don't do that. Uh, if you came to church once every week for three years, and your preacher read and preached on the Psalms every one of those weeks for 150 straight weeks, you still would only get a small portion of the Psalter. And the portion of the Psalter that you would get would be heavily skewed away from uh, 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 laments and so forth. Uh, the other problem with this is that some lament psalms are found in the Revised Common Lectionary, but they are selectively cited, meaning that they appear, but the verses that you're supposed to read edit out the hard things that those laments say. Just as one example, and there are many from Psalm 90, Psalm 90 appears uh, in year A, in the 30th week of ordinary time, uh, and it's, uh, what you get from Psalm 90 in the lectionary is verses 1 through 6 and 13 to 17. Well, why not include verses 7 through 12? Because it says stuff like this. You have set, speaking to God, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance, for all of our days pass away under your wrath. Our years come to an end like a sigh. We don't hear that when it gets read. Now, I'm partly okay with not hearing that. These are not easy words to hear from Scripture. And yet, I would also venture to say that some of us feel this way 
sometimes. Some of us need space in our, in our Christian faith to be able to express some of the doubt and despair that's evident in those omitted verses. What is the result of this sort of selectivity in Christian faith and practice? And here I'm beginning to move uh, toward our conclusion. I think there are four results of this form of selectivity. First, while the Psalms are dearly loved, they only are sparsely used in Christian faith and practice. There is a disjunction between our claim that we love these texts and our willingness to use all of them in our Christian faith and practice. Or maybe more accurately, it would be better to say, we only dearly love some of the Psalms. That is, we only dearly love those Psalms that are easy to pray and that sound nice and tidy and get dressed up in their Sunday best. Functionally speaking, some Psalms, uh, namely the laments, cease functioning canonically. Not that we actually tear them out of our Bibles and throw them away, but if we don't use them, then they don't have the same sort of authority and status uh, in our practical lives uh, as do many, many other psalms. So that's point one. They're dearly loved but sparsely used. The second point is that this sort of selectivity, in my opinion, amounts to nothing less than theological censorship. It withholds from us the full anatomy of the soul that Calvin described. We are left, once this selectivity happens, with something far less robust, far less real, far less true of our lives. We're left with something more of a skeleton than a full body when it comes to understanding the expressions the psalm has to give us. That skeleton that we're left with sounds something like this. What we want from the psalms is all good news all the time. We want only the praises and only them all the time. Uh, It frames the Christian life as all goodness and all happiness and all happily ever after. Uh, It borders on a kind of Joel Olstein type of prosperity gospel. Uh, uh, A colleague of mine calls it uh, a gospel of, of happyology. This kind of idea that the point of the Christian life is to always just be happy. That's the point of discipleship. Now, I have nothing wrong with being happy, but it is a sort of reduced and simplistic version of this message that we find in Scripture. It overlooks the fact, most importantly, that there's not all good things all the time in this world. There's not all good all the time in our lives and in our families and in our workplaces and in our relationships. Um, it, this, the result of this is this sort of uh, what I think is like a flat form of spirituality, one that is mostly disconnected, in fact, from the reality of the world, one that deals in a, a certain type of faith of denial. That is, we, 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 we fail to admit the things that are actually difficult in our lives. And further, it overlooks the fact that in the Psalter, while there is a good deal of praise, that praise often is the result of not going around lament and pain, but rather going through it. That is, the, the, the praise that we experience in the Psalter often comes at the end of a lament psalm. Something has happened. The psalmist has dealt with the pain and the disappointment of life and faith in honest ways, and only by doing that gets to the praise. They don't take a detour around the pain to get to the praise. So I think this all good news all the time is really not good news at all for the life of the church. In fact, what I think it produces, and this is my fourth and final point, I think it produces Sunday-only Christians. Now, by Sunday-only Christians, I don't mean individuals who only act Christian on Sundays, although 
that might be worth a study of its own right. But that's not exactly what I mean by Sunday-only Christian. What I mean by Sunday-only Christian is those Christians who only have space for Sunday theology, only space for the good news of the resurrection. Now, to be sure, friends, the arc of God's narrative surely bends towards Sunday and bends towards resurrection and bends towards hope and bends towards good news. But to get to Sunday, we must go through Friday, Good Friday. It's not good at all. And Saturday, that ambiguous day in between. We can't get to Sunday without those two days. To get there, uh, those two days, Friday and Saturday, are long and lonely days, especially if we sanitize the Psalms so as to remove their candor and honesty. What of those people who are among us who today are facing Friday face-to-face? What if those in our midst, in our community, who are staring deep into the face of Friday's agony, that are facing grief and despair and painful loss and a horrible diagnosis, is there room in the church and in your spirituality to utter, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not for many there isn't. What of those individuals who find themselves on the lonely path of Saturday's agnosticism, along with Friday's agony? The uncertain waiting, the doubt, the vulnerability, the wondering if Sunday will ever come. I wonder if the disciples wondered that. I tend to think that Saturday was the worst day for the disciples because they didn't know what was next. They didn't know. They hoped, but didn't know that Easter morning was 24 hours away. Life, uh, is there room in the church and in your spirituality for uttering, how long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? on those long and lonely Saturdays that we find ourselves in. Friends, life consists not just of Sundays, and here I'm speaking metaphorically, of course, but also of Fridays and Saturdays. And if the church is not a place where we can talk about Fridays and Saturdays, if the church is not a place where we can utter the sort of things that the psalmist dares to utter, people still will experience Fridays and Saturdays. It's just that they'll go elsewhere to deal with them. Their faith will be sectioned off from those experiences of loss and doubt and despair. And the church will continue to have less and less and less of a role to play in their spiritual formation. It is incumbent on us to make this place, to make First Pres in any church a place where we can talk about Fridays and Saturdays, where we dare to utter the Psalms of Lament and connect them in real ways to our lives of faith. And this is what I hope this study does in this next six weeks. If this idea of having to become more raw and real and honest before God and one another terrifies you and makes you uncomfortable, you are in the exact right place. And I hope that you'll come back for each of these six weeks because we have to deal with this stuff head on. And here's how we'll do it. And I'll get you out of here on this. I just want to give a two-minute snapshot then of, of where we're headed. The goal of this study is twofold. One is to discover the full anatomy of the Psalms to recover its its disturbing language, and its beautiful language in all of its various textures, but also then to recover a way of being with God and others that is more honest, unfiltered, and authentic. These are the two goals that will guide us in this course. Uh, To do so, um, well, let me say this. Really, in a nutshell, what we want to do is we want to have a response to that point of grace song. Who am I to utter anything but praise before God? I want us to be able to answer at the end of this course this. I am a human being created in the image of God who, like the incarnate Christ, experiences pain and loss, injustice and betrayal, abandonment and ultimately death 
and are called to bring those experiences and emotions to God with unfiltered honesty. That, in a nutshell, is what we want to learn to do. We want to rewrite that song. It doesn't fit to say all of that in the song. I give Point of Grace credit for that. I have not come up with a lyrical version of that statement, but uh, nevertheless, I want to have, a, uh, to have that knowledge. And the way we'll do this is by identifying, and here I'm following Walter Brueggemann and Paul Ricoeur, and identifying three different, very generally, three different common experiences or maybe seasons in life. We all have seasons of orientation, a situation of equilibrium, where life feels well-saddled and stable and whole and confident. But we also have seasons of disorientation. There are events that drive us from that equilibrium and that stability and threaten us, uh, where we're faced with the reality of chaos, loss, disorder, dislocation. But then, too, and thanks be to God, there are also periods of reorientation where God breaks in and unsettles that disorientation and brings us back to a place of stability and equilibrium, but where we end up in a slightly different place than when we began. What I want to do in this study is kind of use these three general seasons of life and begin to map them onto the Psalms, to begin to identify certain Psalms that can help us uh, speak to God in seasons of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And for each of those, we want to look closely at the language of the Psalms. We want to reflect on how they resonate with our own experiences. And we want to consider how those Psalms of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation might connect us to God in more authentic and honest ways. Um, Just as a brief snapshot, here's what we'll do in those five weeks. Week two, like a tree transplanted, here's where we'll talk about Psalms of orientation. This is next week back in your classes. Week three, out of the depths, here we'll deal with psalms of disorientation. Week four is kind of a part B to our dealing of psalms of disorientation. We'll talk about uh, rivers of Babylon, psalms of imprecation. These are those psalms that call on God really to, to strike out against the enemies of Israel. Week five, sing to the Lord a new song, psalms of reorientation. And then finally in, six week, in week six, when we're back together here in this place, oh, we'll not talk about the palms, um, although... It is Palm Sunday, Um, so I want to claim some sort of providence behind this typo, but I did really actually mean Psalms and the Passion of Christ, the language of lament. So we want to kind of begin to connect this orientation, disorientation, reorientation language back to what happens in Christ's life, especially near uh, that final moment on the cross. This is where we're headed for this six weeks. I hope that you'll join us either through your individual Sunday school classes or through the small group that I'll host in the bride's room. In either case, thanks for joining us this morning, and I hope you have a good rest of the Sunday.